On today's show, we're talking to a really interesting guest, Kanyela Ng. He is running for Congress in Hawaii. Very inspiring. Very young guy. That's great. It's never too young to get in the game. It's never too young. I realize I don't know a lot about Hawaiian history. Yeah, you got to get involved. It's a, it's a pretty, you know, it's, a, it's another one of those stories that's... You got you to gotta get involved in, in gotta, Hawaiian history. It's yeah. never too young to get involved in Hawaiian history. Um. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm your host, Katie Helper. Joined by Gabe Pacheco. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Gabe Pacheco. You can hear the Katie Helper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI. That's 99.5 FM or WBAI.org. Make sure you rate and review us on iTunes, where you can also find us. And you can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And if you become Patreon members, you get to hear extended interviews. You get to hear bonus interviews. Oh, you want to hear too? Uh, I don't need to. No. Yeah. As long as you tell me my. Yeah, my voice you're sounding sounds. good. Let me hear you again. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Gabe Pacheco. That sounds really, really good. Great. I'm not just saying that. Warm and buttery. Can you just mm. tap your thing? Like you wanna, you wanna dip an Alaskan <laughs> king so crab leg right into this, a cup of my voice. Mmm. You guys like shellfish? Anyone? Uh, I do. I like I like lobster a lot. I don't love ca- king crab stuff. I don't like any of the crab royalty. No, I'm not no. sure. I like I like fake crab meat. Isn't that weird? You know, yeah, it is weird. It's weird, right? Crab with a K. I was in Canada, and they pride themselves in West Coast Canada. Uh, they pride themselves on their seafood, their shell food, their sushi, and their sushi is good. Yeah, well, the west side of Canada is basically it's the Pacific Rim. It's, it's part it's of Asia. PR. Yeah. It's PR at the end of the day. Great Chinatowns. Great Chinatowns. Were you in Vancouver? I was in Vancouver. There we go. There we go. And I got to say, though, the crab meat, I didn't like it because the crab meat that they put in their basic California rolls is real crab meat. And it. I don't like that. I like the fake crab meat. You like the crab meat that's made out of sort of... Uh, just Homogenized gross, fish. Yeah, wh- the white fish that ends up in uh, Mr. Burns's... <laughs> giant industrial sized nets that just trawl the entire ocean yeah exactly and get like cranked out and like they have some like hot pink dye on the outside a little pollock a little a little pollock yeah a little skate yeah close call flounder yeah flounder flounder some yeah i like that like i like the way that tastes i know it's not good yeah it's not as as high quality but i like it the other the real crab meat tastes too fishy i like a more nondescript basic basically when i'm having basic sushi which is what a California roll is. I like having basic ingredients in it. Yeah. And that, that's my take, and I'm sticking to it. I had an allergic reaction this weekend. Oh, my gosh. Really? Uh, because I ate vegan sushi at a fundraiser benefit. And uh, I, I love, I have no problem with veganism. I think it's a, it's a wonderful way to sort of try to preserve the earth, uh, whether you do it for ethical reasons or ecological reasons it's fine right but my problem is that the food often is is uh it's disingenuously presented mm. so you're like hey look at this scam veggie burger right Why, just call it like a peanut loaf burger because Interesting. All, none of the, i can't eat any of the food because it's all got nuts in it and that's 
yeah, thing. It's a, yeah, it's a bait and switch. They say, here's a sushi roll, and then I put it in my mouth, and there's like just... <laughs> it's a un- bait and switch roll is what it is. Yeah, unprocessed peanuts in it. I'm like, why are there peanuts in this uh, roll? I mean, are you really saying that, or are you blowing up? I'm blowing... Yeah. I, <laughs> As you're blowing up, you're saying that to yourself. My, my eyes started watering. I immediately got entirely red in the face. Um, I went to the pharmacy that was right on the corner and bought a pack of Benadryl and just chewed four of them. Then I tried to take the subway home because it was a super short ride, 20 minutes. And uh, I'm walking on Manhattan Avenue back to my apartment and I just, to get my EpiPen. And I just exorcist style vomit all over the street at like 5 p.m. And it's beautiful out. Right. Everyone's in Daisy Dukes. There's, you know, tank tops. This was the coating your vomit now. Now. Yeah. They're everyone's just trying to have a good time. You know, mating season started. And then there I am on the street, just projectile vomiting everywhere. And at first, honestly, I felt so good afterwards. Uh. And there's that moment where you realize that you're not in control anymore Uh of uh, and all of the sort of false humility goes out the window any dignity right and uh that that moment it, it was a it was a total purge huh. both a physical purge but then like psychologically i i continued walking down the street with a spring in my step after <laughs> humiliating myself in public like that with a spring on your step and vomit on your shirt well i'm a very i've got a great aim Oh really? Okay. So, so where to go? Mess any none of the wardrobe got messed wow. up. Wow. Kept it off my shoes. The toddler in front of you, however, there bore, were people. Bore the signs. There were people that they saw. You it. didn't. You didn't. I was. I was kidding. You didn't actually stain anyone, right? <laughs> I was imagining I, they received your. Oh, every everyone uh, very consciously didn't make eye contact. Right. You know, everyone created sort of a. There was a force field around me. I was untouchable. Right. That's good. No one asked if I was okay. Okay. Right. That's not good. It's, it's not nice. Fine. It's you fine. wouldn't have asked, but you gave. I I feel like you were the last person, and I don't say this with any judgment, but I feel like in a kind of Larry David Curb Your Enthusiasm-ish way, you would be like emphatic that you shouldn't have to ask someone if they're okay if they vomit on the street. That's right. Right? Yeah. Like you have a real ethical commitment to not having that commitment. I I'm I feel like your body is making you okay. It's gotten rid of whatever was right. inside of you that was poisoning you. Wanna you want to congratulate them, actually. Yeah. Lucky good job. you. Good job. Good job breaking through this sort of um, social, the propriety right. of, of, of trying to present yourself respectably in public. Right. You know, you took care of yourself. You did the thing you needed to do, even though it was slightly violent right. and uh, perhaps a little vulgar. Right. Which is, you know, sometimes that's what you need to do to co- affect real change in yeah, the world. Yeah, it's true. Is be a little vulgar, a little violent, and a little violent, and a little volatile. Slightly How about volatile, that? yeah. Three V's. Mm-hmm. I think we just got the name of our the subtitle of our of our show. I don't ask for help though. I think it's uh, I got to go to a therapist. You know, I think it's it's definitely it's some toxic masculinity. I see. Keeps me feeling like but you no, know I can you handle just it. Did. You know, you just did, Gabe. What's that? You took you just broke through. You you vomited intellectually and spiritually on this very show because you said. You need to go to a therapist. You know what that is? Seek help, guys. You if you're listening asked, to this right yes. now, you know, don't don't bottle it all up. Don't hold it all in. You know, we're not cowboys. No one in here is uh don't don't be Clint Eastwood Whoa. from Unforgiven. Do you think your allergies are because you don't seek help? No, but I think I think the fact that I continue to have allergic reactions and only talk about them after they've happened. Right. That's, Maybe. That's uh, interesting. part of my so My you don't preview, we don't you don't preview them like others do. Yeah, I just don't ask for help when I'm in the middle of it. Right. 
Uh, okay, so let's let's give some tips for people out there who have allergies, so they know how to do the fragile masculine v- v- response versus the healthy one. Hey, ask always ask. So what should you have done? I mean, I'm. What I'm, should I have done? Yeah. I, well, one, I should have kept my epipens on me. Yes. Two, I should have asked before I ate the food and not yes. been careless. And then uh, three, immediately after I started having the reaction, I should have told the people around me and uh, gotten whatever yeah whatever help they were willing to offer. Right. Although it would have felt like an overreaction right. to me based on my own the, my own filters. Right. Sure, this is great. I like this a lot. Yeah. So you're saying that you what you should have done is said, "Hey guys, I need help," and someone could have gotten your EpiPen for you. Like how would have that's this- right? Or I would have I should have gone to the hospital to be honest. But uh, you know, the whole point of this whole thing is that veganism is fine. But please, if you're gonna make food that is representing uh food with meat in it if there are nuts in it just say let it. everybody know just own it just right. own it man don't say this is a veggie burger say this is a nut burger yeah there's a big there's, nut nothing burger you got of nuts. cashews smeared all over the inside of this faux california roll yeah no that's not cool because you're recreating you have an opportunity to recreate something wonderful yeah that doesn't threaten anyone's life right oh my gosh you know what i feel like this is some weird like cycle of violence it's like the vegans want to inflict this on someone else so they're mad at meat eaters because we kill animals so they may be okay maybe this is like a statement yeah well for me i i just can't even um entertain the idea of a vegan lifestyle based on my Okay, My vegans, analogies. I hope you're happy. You just lost a potential convert. Speaking of vegans, I saw the founder. I know what you're thinking. How the heck does a 52-year-old, over-the-hill, milkshake machine salesman build a fast food empire with 1,600 restaurants and an annual revenue of $700 million? One word. Persistence. Founders about Ray... Croc. Croc who was the founder of the franchise of McDonald's. So he didn't start the first McDonald's, but he started the first McDonald's yeah. franchise. There should be McDonald's everywhere. Franchise the damn thing. Mr. Croc. Franchise. 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 McDonald's can be the new American church. And it ain't just open on Sundays, boys. The founder's a great movie. I liked the movie. He seemed like a terrible person. Did you mortgage our home? We could lose everything. I want to renegotiate my lousy deal. I can't. Can't or won't? Ray. What? No. Oh, damn it. Incredibly um, unpleasant. When's enough going to be enough for you? Probably never. You are to stop this instant. I am through taking orders from you. You have a contract. Contracts are like hearts. They're made to be broken. He was just a, a perfect American archetype. He's yes. a traveling salesman. And yep. he would listen to uh, 45s of self-help. Right gurus in his hotel rooms at night while drinking because they didn't have podcasts back then right or so he would have been a subscriber to the he K- would have been Patreon, listening to like Katie tim ferris's no i think he would have been Probably like a four-hour yeah. work week Probably, type guy yeah yeah, yeah. He, he was good in it michael keaton he was uh-huh. good here's my problem with the film i was a little bit like i hate you business is war it's dog eat dog rat eat rat i want to take the future i want to win and there's nothing wrong with making biopics about bad people or complex people. But I was like, I don't hate him enough. Like, I, I hated him more than the movie did. And by at the end of the movie, when they have the subtitles or the text telling you what happened to various people, 
they talked about how how his wife gave almost all of her charity of her money to charity including the Salvation Army and how today McDonald's feeds 1% of the world's population and it it seemed to be very much selling this guy McDonald's as a good thing and then I felt like I had been violated the whole movie. So there's an interesting uh, anecdote around the uh, his wife mm-hmm. giving all that money to the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army had a uh, women's shelter in uh, Manhattan. And when she gave that money to the Salvation Army, uh, she said that they could use it, but they could only use it to build new buildings, not to uh, pay for the utilities or to hire new employees. Capital. It was a capital so, investment that they could make. Uh-huh. So the Salvation Army ended up having to sell off other properties and uh, get rid of these um, these uh, shelters so that they could raise the capital to then <gasps> uh, hire people. So the her basically her donation came with strings attached. Why'd she do that? Were they just evil people all around? I don't know. I mean, that's just their value system. Wow. That director, he kind of like revealed himself, I feel like, at the end by praising them so hard during the credits. Anyway, today, by the way, on today's show, we're talking to a really interesting guest, Taniela Ng. He is running for Congress in Hawaii, and uh, I hope he wins. That would be great. I mean, now that he's getting the Katie Halpershaw bump, the likelihood is a lot higher. He took on Mark Zuckerberg when Mark Zuckerberg... Uh, sued Hawaiians in an attempt to buy up a bunch of land and build a wall because he's not a bad enough person already. What I like about this is I like how like Mark Zuckerberg is like a renaissance man in his reprehensible behavior. Like he doesn't just violate people's like privacy and do awful things through Facebook. He also plays like an oligarch in real life. Yeah. You know, it's not just E. It's not just E oligarchy. It's actual real life stuff, uh, and it's kind of a throwback. I like how like old school, like bar- colonial it is. Yeah, like white man buys, goes to an island, and you know tries to like kick the natives off. I, I actually just saw the Social Network. Did you see that? Yeah, pretty good movie. What a great origin story for a supervillain. <laughs> yeah, it is right. It's so funny that the origin of Facebook is just him. The spited. origin of the Facebook. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's by D- D- David Fincher. Fincher, yes. Fincher. Um, and it's uh, Aaron Sorkin wrote it, who did the newsroom and um, a West Wing, of course. Neither I don't watch either of them, but it does have this line that I love at the beginning of the movie, where a woman tells um, Mark Zuckerberg's character, "You're going to go through life thinking that girls don't like you because you're a nerd, and I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that that won't be true. It'll be because you're an asshole." Which I think does apply to a lot of, of, of people, especially men. Yeah. I mean, it is it is like a funny Revenge of the Nerds type story. Mm-hmm. There's like in this movie, there's like two different lawsuits, right? There's Mark Zuckerberg and there's Eduardo Saverin, who's like a Brazilian billionaire. Yeah. And then there are these very wa- alpha waspy uh, crew rowing twins from Harvard. The Winklevoss brothers, the two good looking um, trust fund uh, children of millionaires who were competing with him uh, to set up the first social network. Right. He gave himself a 42-day head start because he knows what apparently you don't, which is that getting there first is everything. I'm a competitive racer, Div. I don't think you need to school me on the importance of getting there first. Thank you. And uh, if this was a movie from the 80s, they would have been the villains, right? If this was Revenge of yes. the Nerds, they would have been the right. frat guys. Well, let's get those nerds! 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 
The good-looking golden boy frat guys who were, who are the bad guys, but they are they come out looking so sympathetic. Now, while we're waiting for Dad's lawyer to look this stuff over, we can at least get something going in the paper no. so people know what? that this is in dispute. We're not starting a knife fight in the Crimson, and we're not suing anybody. Why not? Because we're gentlemen of Harvard. This is Harvard, where you don't plant stories, and you don't sue people. And those guys I feel like I didn't really have sympathy for. They were funny. They were kind of funny, the characters. Um, they were played by one guy. Yeah, they were like charming. Just yeah, they're charming, charming handsome, character. yeah. But but I actually did really feel bad for the Eduardo character. Um and but I, I found Zuckerberg kind of likable. I mean in this in this film version of it. Oh interesting. You didn't I thought all. not not even in the slightest. Interesting. No, yeah. I, I I like Jesse Eisenberg. I thought it was fine as a performer. A good of, right. But I but watching it I was like, Oh, this dude, he reminds me of like the villain from Chronicle. It's like which you I don't know if you've seen, Mm-mm. but in, it's a movie that stars uh, uh, Michael Michael B. Jordan. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in this movie, you've got three kids. One of them is sort of um, uh, a C plus student, and then you've got Michael B. Jordan, who's uh, the golden boy, like alpha jock, but good hearted. And then you've got this nerd uh, who's played by Dane DeHaan. and they all get these powers that make them super. But you see that when you give this uh, this this person who's like emotionally crippled and ugly on the inside because he's been bullied so much. You right. give him all of these powers, he just becomes a villain, and that's kind of what uh, Fincher's version of Zuckerberg is to me. Right, this sort of you know outcast who uh, <laughs> outcast who's good at algorithms and stealing yeah. people's ideas. Right. I mean, doesn't but. I, I feel like the movie has to be somewhat – like, if it, you're just a plain evil person, it wouldn't really work. Like, I'm not saying that you're wrong about what Zuckerberg really is like, but I feel like at least in the movie, the way that they did it, you you had some sympathy for him because he, he – what made, I thought, the performance good was that you saw he was in pain. Yeah. But you're like – but you're basically like, I don't care. Well, he still pain. was a dick. Right? Doesn't matter. Pain. Yeah. It's, yeah. That's interesting. Because I, while I was watching it, I was like, I don't like how much I feel bad for him. Like, I was a little uncomfortable with how I felt like Jesse Eisenberg was doing a great job. Uh, it's hard for me to feel bad for somebody that's like a, a billionaire and a role model for an entire generation right. of people who want to make money the same way. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, yeah, he was good good in, in it. And uh, we should interview. Maybe we can have Jesse, Jesse Eisenberg on the show. Ask him why he tried to like uh, evict all these Hawaiians from their own land. Oh, you mean Mark Zuckerberg? Yeah, I know, but we could treat him in, in my in my version of it. We just interview him and ask him questions as if he were Mark Zuckerberg. Um, to talk about like revenge of the nerds or the cool kids versus the the underdogs. Taniella Ng, who's running for Congress in Hawaii, he's part of this like new. He was one of the few people to back Bernie early on. He was in a band, and he shaved his dreadlocks and decided to run for uh, college, student government, and he and he won. Uh, even though his his opponent's dad like p- put like five thousand dollars into the into his campaign, the student government campaign. Oh, okay, so he was uh, outgunned with financial resources. Yeah, and he still and he still won. Uh huh. Yeah, by like for wow, votes man, that that dad from the opponent must. Just feels so bad about his son's popularity now, because even with all that money, his son still lost. Yes. You can buy a lot of votes with five thousand yeah, dollars, especially can. in college, especially in Hawaii. Yeah, um, yeah, 
just a but you just give a give enough kids moco locos <laughs> that's how you do it yeah yeah and Caniella is going to talk to us and he can tell us some tips on how to take uh, on oligarchs so really excited to be talking to Caniella Saito Ng who is running for congress uh, in Hawaii and he's a lawmaker he is a democrat he's also a democratic socialist of america member so member of the dsa and he's also someone who is like a real real progressive and also has some experience taking on none other than mark zuckerberg so he has lots of really important things to say and yeah i'm really excited to speak to you thanks so much for coming on no thanks for having me i'm excited to be here Great. Can you tell us what you're working on right now? Yeah, I'm a state representative, currently majority policy leader in the state house, but that's not really here or there. What what we're really focusing on is just trying to build movements of people from the ground up. Uh, We have a a few bills still alive um, that are important this year. Uh, One is to stop uh, sort of colonizing efforts like the one that's like Zuckerberg did a few years back. And I imagine we'll get into that later yeah. on, but yeah, that bill is still alive and it just got revived. So that might actually pass and really uh, be a slap in the face to him. Wow. Great. So state, you're a state representative. Um, and as you say that that's not really here, neither here nor there. And is that because <laughs> you're more of an organizer? You consider yourself more of an organizer first and foremost, or wh- why is that not really here nor there? I mean, I think people are sort of tired of like this technocratic view that experience means the best representation. And mm. oftentimes, like yeah. if like I'm a I'm a musician, right? And I used to play a lot of guitar growing up. And then I entered the music program in in college, and I it was all like I was showing off to my teacher like for the audition, and he's like, "That sounds terrible." your fingers are all picking in the wrong places and it sounds folksy. Like you should be playing Bob Dylan instead. Mm. And, you know, just because I had 12 years of experience playing guitar, I knew nothing about um, doing it the right way. And I think that's kind of where we are now is like these, these politicians that have so, so many years of experience is actually a detriment to representing people in the 21st century and the struggles that we're going through, especially young people where the economy seems to be rigged against us and we're not set up to succeed. So I'm not going to walk around boasting credentials. Rather, I'm, I see myself as more of a movement candidate. And when whatever, you know, when I see like power generated from the ground up, be it in like social justice, economic justice, gender equality, I just want to see how can I amp- amplify those voices and ask the right questions to the folks most affected. Because I think that's the issue. I've been in office since 2012 and the circle of the people you talk to gets smaller and smaller the longer mm-hmm. you're in and they get richer and richer. And then that right. tends to like throw you off and like you swim in the soup for too long and you think that's what the world tastes like. So I, I try to make sure that I always like, I always focus on listening and movement building. Uh, so yeah, so anyways, your majority slogan, policy leader. Your slogan could be um, <laughs> vote for me despite the fact that I'm already a politician. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, actually, I say that kind of stuff. Like, hey, I'm Caniella. Unfortunately, I'm a politician. Right. I've been but, a politician for... Uh, hi, my name is Caniella. Uh, I'm, I'm a politician. I've been a politician for around uh, uh, six years now. Right? Like a like an AA meeting or something, but <laughs> yeah. politics, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I'm a politician. Everybody claps. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it, it really is. Um, it, there's really a lot of like money pressure. Like I'd be on the floor and, and lobbyists would be texting me like, we'll remember this vote and like as a threat. So, mm, you know, wow. we've all done it a little bit differently. Like I don't, I don't take any corporate money. So I'm able to kind of vote my conscience and be with the people. Uh, but then you also have, really tough re-elections when you do it that way too so can you tell uh, us kinda who, used to who, who texted you that i don't want to contribute to making you unsafe but we're we're no fear we're no fear i mean it was i think at the time that was a bayer lobbyist like big pharma mm. and we have a big problem with uh chemical companies that control our agriculture in hawaii and they you know they make they genetically modify crops so they can sell more chemicals uh and there's a big buyout right now um a big merger where Bayer is buying out Monsanto and it you know it doesn't take a a genius to figure out the moral or a philosopher to, to figure out the moral hazard of having the same people that make poison also make mm. your medicine um as monopoly and that's that's like that's a wow. big issue here so they've been and obviously and they also make these these sunscreens like copper tone that have been ruining our reefs like the oxybenzone the this chemical in their in their sunscreen has been like you know, killing so much of our wildlife, our marine wildlife. And we had a bill to like regulate that sort of sunscreen and they just threw a bunch of money at us and killed those bills. Wow. That's Uh, funny what you just said um, about, uh, you know, how there's something dangerous about having the same people making farm. What did you say? Sorry. I want to make sure I get you get the quote. You said uh, there's something dangerous about having the same people make poisons and toxins and the chemicals that, kill them right <laughs> they get profit yeah. they profit on both sides right and it reminds me of what you said i listened to your um interview with uh, virgil texas which was great virgil texas from chapo trap house interviewed you you said something about how you want to kind of shift uh, hawaii's economy away from the military you wrote to dsa honolulu that you oppose the militarization of the islands and the military industrial complex and Virgil asked you something about, you know, well, what about the fact that these bases uh, supply jobs? And I presume these military bases prop up a lot of the local economy. And even people like John McCain, militarists who have proposed base closures purely from an efficiency and waste standpoint, can't get their way because of a lot of places in the country have no other economic engines and rely on what is basically federal welfare in the form of defense spending. So if a base closes anywhere in the country and a lot of people in the surrounding economy lose their jobs, how do you propose to make up for that? And you said something like the fact that our livelihoods in Hawaii are is tied to the death and destruction of others abroad is abhorrent. It's immoral. And I, I cannot, I, I, it's really frustrating that folks have no problem with that, that if war were to stop, our economy would stop. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously there's something wrong with that picture. Um, how, how, how uncompassionate can we be? Uh, so you know, I, I understand at the time when you're a colonized state and, um, you know, there's World War II going on, how it makes sense to, you know, get that boost. But now we're way beyond that. Uh, you know, local people are starting in, are starting businesses, they're going to schools, they're doing all kinds of stuff. They're, they're becoming, they're starting movements. And I think we can take our own, you can take our, our own lives and our lives into our own hands. We don't have to be reliant on this, uh, military um scraps that they that they shovel under the table for us 
It was just a kind of really distilled something that's obvious that, but, but that we forget and that's really scary, which is that, wow, we have like an incentivized killing system. Like right. we pit people against each other by making it so that our literal livelihoods are depending on our killing other people, which exactly. Yeah. It's so, it's so part of the system that we like forget that. And yeah, so, you sometimes yeah. you just got to take a step back and really ask those moral questions. And yeah, the fact that like if war were to stop, which should be the goal, if war were to stop, then our economy would stop in Hawaii. And just that thought is abhorrent. Like, obviously, we need to move away from that. And if we just invested half of what we invested in military in um, here in Hawaii on a federal job program or just infrastructure generally, right. that would mean a lot more local jobs and direct benefit to our economy because uh, these military uh, jobs are really temporary and, um, you know, th them leaving might hurt our GDP, but not our GDP per capita, which means the, the actual money in individuals' pockets uh, because we don't have an underpopulation problem in Hawaii. We have quite the opposite. So you're saying it would hurt. So when, when it would hurt the GDP, that means it would hurt what? Uh, it would hurt like the very, very rich. Yeah, the, the economy at large would get smaller, like the entire pie would get smaller, but our individual pieces will likely grow. Right. It's just like some really, really rich people will have less money, but money that they didn't need anyway. Exactly. And like, that's not how the economy works, right? I mean, I think the, the recent stat was 82% of the new wealth generated last year went to the top 1%. And, you know, these aren't wow. people that are going to spend that money. They're going right. to do stock buybacks, which should be illegal, by the way, or hide their money, hoard it in like the Cayman Islands. And that doesn't, our, our economy runs on spending. Sure. So it's much better when, you know, you actually invest in working people who will go and buy groceries and just normal stuff. Right. That, that that's, the, that's what creates jobs, really. Yeah, because they're the ones who are not, I mean, that makes a big different like they will either have the money to spend or not and it makes a difference because they'll be putting into the economy which is whereas as you said the uber wealthy are not going to be not it's not like they're not buying groceries they're already yeah. buying whatever fancy stuff they buy and now they'll just have more money to put in some offshore bank or whatever um yeah. so can you tell us more about uh, the history of what happened with you and zuckerberg you wrote a really great op-ed in BuzzFeed called We Beat Mark Zuckerberg in Hawaii and We Can Beat Him in Washington. You said Hawaii has a long history of dealing with oligarchs like Zuckerberg. In 2014, he bought 700 acres of beachfront land in my home state of Hawaii. He built a wall around the property and then tried to force hundreds of native Hawaiians to forfeit their gathering rights to the land by suing them. This same tactic was used by sugar barons in the Gilded Age to displace thousands of native Hawaiian families from their ancestral lands. So can you talk to us about that? Because it's such a, a fascinating kind of history about Hawaii. And, and I realize like how ignorant I am and most people are about Hawaii. It seems so overlooked, I'm realizing. It is so overlooked in history books. Um, and you wrote a really great op-ed in BuzzFeed, uh, called We Beat Mark Zuckerberg in Hawaii and We Can Beat Him in Washington. Could you tell us a little bit about this, how you already beat him, uh, and also where you are in the fight now? Uh, I think this is something that a lot of billionaires are doing. They're like preparing for an apocalypse mm. or something. But he bought 700 acres on Kauai. And it's some of the most beautiful, pristine uh, land in our entire state. It's where they film Avatar and mm. Jurassic Park, right on the shoreline. Um, and it's, you know, we're talking about like miles 
And when you buy, when a, like a rich person buys that kind of, buys three acres in any rural community, it's going to cause like some un- unease and probably an uproar if they don't really talk it over. But 700 acres is a whole different scale. So the island residents were already concerned. He didn't, he only goes there like a couple of days a week. He built a big wall around it. Um, this is during the time where he's talking about building bridges, not walls, right? right. Uh, and it turns out that 17 acres out of, out of that 700 uh, went back to like the, the, the Native Hawaiian families had uh, land rights, gathering rights to that to the 17 acres. It was it, it was undefined with like where the, those acres were in his property. Um, but instead of you know bringing those families to the table and trying to figure out how to best move forward, he sued them. And when you get sued by the biggest, you know, one of the richest people in the world, you got to lawyer up, and that's gonna be really expensive. And even if these families were to get back money from that settlement, uh, it probably wouldn't. They probably would have incurred more in legal costs. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was extremely, um, you know not being a good neighbor that's not how we initiate conversation in hawaii with the aloha spirit you don't just sue your neighbors right. uh so uh you know i got on the media i called them a mod- modern day colonizer uh because nice. the i mean the he's using the exact same legal mechanisms that the plantation owners the sugar barons used uh 200 years ago when hawaii was under complete oligarchical control uh so to many native hawaiians including myself it was um, insulting. It was like a capstone of injustices, uh, just, you know, the 21st century. So he looking at running for president or something at the time, after three weeks of international bad headlines, he finally dropped the lawsuits. Uh, and, you know, these families uh, don't have to face that anymore. But they still didn't get back their land. Like, I think the easiest thing wow. for him to do is just section off like 17 acres and say, here's this is for y'all figure out, you know, among yourselves. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of insane that someone could be that greedy. And the only reason why you'd really sue someone from um, when you have that much land and you have like private security is just so, cause you don't want them walking through, like they don't really own houses out there. They just want to walk through to like go to the beach and surf and stuff, you know, and fish. But if you don't, if you really don't want brown people on your property, I guess that's that's what you got to do. Right. He made it seem like he was being a good person about it, uh, just because he wrote this this note on Facebook. <laughs> of course, he said that for uh, for most of these folks, they will now receive money for something they never even knew they had. No one will be forced off the land. He said that when he filed the uh, title action suits, it was to, quote, make sure smaller partial owners get paid for their share, too. And he said he's working with a native uh, professor of Native Hawaiian studies, a longtime member of this community. Yeah, the funny thing is that that professor was it, it was trying to before Zuckerberg came on, he was like he was suing the families himself oh, nice. just unsuccessfully. So he was like the one Hawaiian that would be on his side. Right. Uh, wow. And and he's only talking about like half of this quiet title law, but he's also used this other mechanism called adverse possession, which is this essentially corporate squatting law that if you, even if it's not your property, if, if you are there and stationed there for like 10 years or so, I forget what the exact number is now, then you take the land. Mm-hmm. And 
as long as nobody like contested and tries to live there. And when you build a fence and you put up signs that says like no trespassing, it's going to work. And that's that mechanism that um, that the sugar barons used to use. And he didn't mention at all in that statement. Right. Wow. Yeah. This guy, he's giving Zuckerberg like Hawaiian cover for to do what he's doing. It's pretty gross. Yeah. And that's, you know, that, that's, that's typical. That's that's like the typical colonizing method. Right? Yeah, exactly. You use brown faces and. It's like how Breitbart used Milo to, oh, like, yeah. you know, uh, to kind of subvert the LGBTQ movement. It happens all the time here. They can't become a because they have a gay person or, <laughs> yeah, totally, yeah. Yeah, can you tell us more about this history? No one could uh, own land back before, like, the colonizers came. Uh, it was, people were trusted as stewards of the land, even up to the, up to the kings, up to the chiefs. Um, we just manage it and, you know, you live off the land. And that's kind of, that's how actually most, many Native Hawaiians live today. Uh, they don't see it as something you can buy and sell. Mm. Uh, that's how we're able to host a million people on our islands, uh, just as much as we have today. And we're completely self-sufficient. Uh, we could, you know, we, we had a subsistent economy. Now, if the, if the docks were to close in Hawaii, we'd only last a few days. Wow. Uh, so, I think it's kind of getting back to those basics where you can actually live sustainably um, that we're kind of moving towards throughout the whole nation. But uh, anyways, this Mahele happened, this land divide where like some, some of the land went to the king, some went to private ownership and um, some went to the people. And this was like this, this agreement made with kind of the missionary oligarchs and the land that uh, some of that land was called Kuleana land where like the people um, the commoners were able to pass on from generation to generation. But when you fast forward 200 years, just like, you know, many natives on the continent, uh, it's, it's so small. And because there's no paper trail of who owns what, it was all done verbally. It's really hard to track and to like parcel it out in the, in the Western system. Um, so that, that's, that's the issue now. Um, they only know that there's 17 acres. They don't know where it is. Uh, my suggestion was just parcel it off and, you know, just give it to them. That's It's so minor when you're talking about 700 acres. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, that's not the tax he took. Right. Hawaii was under complete oligarchical control by just five missionary families. Um, and today, one could argue that we still are, mm. uh, both our government and our economy. So Alexander and Baldwin, those are two of the families. They're now one corporation in Hawaii. They're the second largest landowner, and they're the largest, the single largest campaign contributor. So yeah. when my opponents approach Alexander Baldwin, uh, the maximum you can take from any corporation is is five thousand dollars. So they'll get that, but they'll also get twenty seven hundred, um, which is the maximum from individual. They'll get that from all the sea level people, and they'll find some of their middle managers to give. Uh, the maximum as well. So when you go to A and B, you don't ask for the max. You ask for like 50 grand or 100 grand, and that's how they control elections. And they could, I mean, like when I they had a bill last year or two years ago that uh, like our last sugar plantation closed, uh, ended in Hawaii, and they wanted to keep continue on with sole corporate ownership of our public streams and kind of decimate these small Hawaiian farmers and. I opposed that bill, and they actually got shut down in the Supreme Court. So they went to the legislature to change the law. And, you know, I, I opposed it. I organized a few others to oppose it, and a lot of the environmental groups and native groups. And uh, we weakened the bill. We weren't able to kill it. 
But my reward was uh, a primary opponent that received record funding uh, over uh, six times the average of the district. Um, and it was all backed by this one corporation. Wow. So, uh, you know, that's what we're dealing with in Hawaii. And I think that's what we've seen with, uh, with Dr. Berg in Congress. You've seen all these softball questions thrown at him. Um, and, you know, just really just kissing his ass. Right. And, and the reason why is because they know that he could bankroll their campaigns or their opponent's campaigns with no problem. Drop three, four million dollars for Zuckerberg. That's like, that's like you and I like giving two dollars to, um, an unsheltered person on the street. Right. Yeah, I actually just watched, to prepare for this, I watched the film The Social Network, which I'd never seen. Uh, I don't know if you saw it. But uh, there's a part in it where, I guess, a lawyer played by um, uh, uh, Jones, Rashida Jones, says something to to Zuckerberg about how he needs to pay this lawsuit of, like, millions of dollars. I can't even remember how many millions of dollars it is. And she's like, in the scheme scheme of things for you, it's like a speeding ticket. You know, right. it's it's nothing for him. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's I think that's a broader problem going on in Congress today. Like it's just there's so many millionaires and corporate lawyers in Congress that I mean it's it's cool. You know, it's cool to be like a small business owner or a large business right. owner and be able to talk about the minimum wage. But I think it's more important to have people in there who actually worked minimum wage jobs. Yeah. Like ten years ago. Um, and that's truly missing. Like, you know, I come from a working class background, so it's like, I want to, like, that's, that's what I care about. Like, I, I fight for working families because I come from one. And when you d- lack that perspective, when, when Congress looks like the 1% of America, then we think that all you need to do is stop Donald Trump and everything in America is going to be fine. And that's why, like, the Democrats, I think, are really missing the message here. They're really missing how Donald Trump even won is totally, yeah. you, you you reach out you look at people suffer, suffering and you don't you can't just say hey i see you you got to say i feel your pain yeah they got to know that you feel their pain and you know that like in hawaii your houses now are seven hundred seventy thousand dollars is the median which means you got to be making two hundred thousand dollars out of college to even be in the middle class and own a home like that's insane like things are out of control and our economy is completely rigged and uh it's time that we um you know, reject money in politics and pass good policies that work for everyone, like Medicare for all, like debt-free college, um, and a federal job guarantee, student loan cancellation. And I don't know, it's, we got to be championing these causes now. We can't just be thinking incrementally. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, something that's happening now with the with the bombs in Syria is the bombing in Syria. I mean, you just see this absurd, like, rejoicing around it. And it's, it's, it's this total... I mean, I'm just so scared if this is the resistance because it's so not resistance. You know, you see this weird thing where, like, the same people who are calling Trump insane and unstable, uh, and I, I detest Trump. I'm not saying this to defend Trump, but you have people calling him unstable and insane, then telling him that he's he's being a wimp and and kind of urging him to to, you know, show that he hates Russia by bombing Syria. Then he goes turns around does it and then they're mad and pretend that like they are are like peaceniks and he's doing something that they didn't actually encourage him to do uh it just reminds me of uh, in in terms of the takeaways that that people are getting or not getting from trump's victory it's just very it's very depressing um because i i really think people are in some sort of denial on 
politicians or aspiring politicians or movement people like you are really encouraging and inspiring because you actually got the memo, so to speak. You've been getting the memo. You got the memo before Trump's victory. And like you said, it's one thing to say, I get it. I get the numbers and the stats about unemployment or the stats about poverty or the stats about um, uninsured people. But it's another thing to really make it seem like you you feel the people's pain, right? Um, yeah. Trump and, and Sanders both convince people they felt their pain, but one really did feel it. One, one just exploited it, and Clinton didn't even come off as feeling it at all. And I'm not equating Clinton or pretending she's worse than Trump at all. I'm just saying that people were didn't take her seriously as someone who was kind of tuned into what was happening on an emotional level. She's swimming the soup for too long. Yeah. Uh, like for me, like I, I won my first race at 23 years old, and it was in a Republican district right? Um, against a Tea Party incumbent. And I did it by knocking on every door personally, 15,000 doors. And when you, when you actually talk to Republicans, most of them – First of all, most people don't see the world as left and right. That's right. kind of an elitist view. Yeah. Um, most people see it as up and down. Are you with us, the people? Are you with this handful of wealthy elites who have too much power? Mm-hmm. And those elites look different on the left and the right. But if you can communicate that message that you're, you know, that you are willing to fight against the system, not just within it, and you actually see these systems of oppression, it's not just people. Um, then that's a winning message. That's what Trump and Bernie both did. Right. They recognize that, that most people see it as up and down. Uh, and uh, of course, Trump, he, yeah, he got some, he got a lot of fervent support by like scapegoating minorities and being xenophobic and completely racist and completely right. sexist. But that's not how he won. There's not, there's, there's not mm. that many, what, what did Hillary call them? Deplorables? Yeah, no, he won by, yeah. yeah, he won by, like I drove, we, we were in a vacation and we we're going from Vegas to like uh, Arizona and we're driving past all these like kind of um, becoming desolate towns. Mm. And we're just thinking like, what did they hear when when Hillary gets on stage and says America's already great? Yeah, totally. They feel ignored. So make America great again to them is like, OK, like we have something like there's light at the end of the tunnel as Democrats. we got to give an affirmative not just stopping trump it's it's this idea that the system in place doesn't work for the most of us right um and that that message can transcend partisan divides i I strongly believe that right yeah the outrage is a good thing and then the thing that dems have to do or and bernie did do right is it's like yeah make america great again but not in a what trump was basically saying was like make it go backwards um or that's what he's doing Right. right and there's and people sometimes like to compare Trump and Bernie. It's like, no, the, the only thing they have in common is that they were f- understood people were hurting, but their descri- their prescription for what to do was to- was so different. I mean, one was like blame Mexicans and Muslims, and the other one was like, no, blame companies, corporations, billionaires, you know. Um, I heard you say to in your interview with Virgil that your dad's death when you were 12, it almost radicalized you. But correct me yeah. if I'm putting words in your mouth. Um, that's a fair term yeah okay. i would say radicalized uh i don't think our policies are radical they're supported by 70 sure. percent of people um generally um i think medicare for all has over majority support yeah. now in america uh but what's radical really is the, is the problems we face so we need some solutions to match them 
But, you know, my dad was a hardcore Republican. We all voted for uh, Bush growing up. My, actually, my father could, he may have been a Trump supporter today, but I hope, I hope he would have changed with, with the rest of us. He, we were, he was born again Christian. Wow. So, you know, really very zealous. We weren't allowed to listen to anything secular wow. or see anything secular with just PBS and Christian radio. Um, but he passed away suddenly um, around my 12th birthday. And we are, he was like 38. And we are already kind of, when we were already working class, like my mom worked at a Macy's uh, and he was a waiter. So it was a struggle. I had to work at the pineapple fields at 14 years old summer times and after school to help my mom with bills Mm -hmm. and um we relied on all sorts of government programs like free school lunch and medicaid and social security uh, supplemental income and all sorts of policies that are under threat today and if like trump and a gop and some corporate democrats had their way uh, i could be on the streets today so very quickly i realized that this this gop this conservative myth that if you just work hard enough you can get by uh that wasn't quite true because my mom i don't know if anyone more hardworking than my mom and she would you know it wasn't uncommon for her to skip meals to feed us and we really relied on like our public school teachers and these programs so i probably became a democrat and a progressive um around my 13th 14th birthday wow yeah it was quick And yeah, no, you're totally right. Uh, when you said the, your point about the radical or non-radical nature of these policies, uh, you're 100% right uh, that these are they're they're relegate. I mean, they're called radical, and they're they're people try to kind of um, dismiss them or or condemn them as radical and fringe, but they're actually not at all. Like you were saying, all of these things, Medicare for all, they have mass support. Um, so. I, I guess I should have said they you, that your father's death kind of um, changed your politics. So maybe that was the radical part was how radically you changed from the the politics of republicanism. But you're totally right in that there's nothing fringe or extreme about these positions, and and that the radical thing is that we live in a country where where given how popular these things are, I mean it's scary and it's radical in a scary way that politicians don't defend them. Yeah, I mean, the radical political view, in my mind, uh, the radical political view to have is that our current system works right. for most of, for all of us. That's, it's not backed by fact. Right. It's fundamental. Uh, you know, the in, inequality is running away. And, and like, I, I'm all for incremental change. Like, I understand that things happen incrementally, but you can't think incrementally. You got to have, you got to have courage in your heart and distance in your eyes like you mm. got to know where you're where the hell you're going right. uh and i think that's an issue right now with, with the democratic party is um we're just thinking incrementally and incremental change is no change for someone getting deported or uh, uh like my mom who couldn't you know or someone who, who weren't as lucky as my mom like you know if, if she was a, a micronesian migrant worker in hawaii we probably wouldn't have stood a shot because they, they don't qualify for medicaid mm. uh so, you know, that, those are the people I tend to focus the most on, um, the people who are the most vulnerable and um, don't really have much of a voice. Right. And, um, of, and of course, not, ha- you know, having like a middle, moderate 
position, it doesn't inspire anyone. Like n- no one leaves the house to vote for that if they're if they're not already like mo- I mean th- th- people who stayed home are not going to get out of the house because someone has some middle of the road position. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly it. That's something that we've been really like we used to make fun of when Ted Ted Cruz was running during mm-hmm. the midterms against uh, after Obama got in. And he was taking all these radical stances, repeal Obamacare. Right. Uh, he was talking about, you know, not letting Muslims in and walls. And he was trying to push it as far as he could on the conservative side. Everybody laughed at him. They thought it was crazy because he wasn't joining this gang of eight to come to the middle and talk about immigration. Um, right. But as soon as Republicans, he didn't pass anything, but as soon as Republicans got back in power, they adopted the entire crew's agenda because he generated so much energy on the ground within the base that uh it was actually in a sense leading the party right and that's a we we have a chance to do that right now when we're not in power um this idea that we can just like come to the table and compromise with uncompromising republicans is foolhardy we tried it in the past like uh, the affordable care act we gave yeah. we conceded 40 republican amendments for zero republican votes right it's it's, it's, it's so naive at this point and and foolish uh, so we really need to be thinking about how do we generate energy uh, from the ground or from our base and shift the conversation. I think the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 um, really lit a fire under so many of us to um, do what he did uh, just with more of us. Right. Yeah, that's um, it's so funny. I don't know if they're naive. I mean, I think they're naive, but for some people, I think they must get it and just oppose it. Like, I think some people it's I get the like that from a distance and on a superficial level it looks like you can't get too far if you're too extreme it's not extreme but if you're too aggressive and you have to be baby steps incrementalism but like you said i mean it that's not what history shows yeah exactly it's not what Mm -hmm. history shows and like when people are like oh this will never pass you know medicare for all it's like god forbid we get people excited about the idea of something or we normalize the idea of something right or we like take people's outrage and channel it into a demand for something that becomes the 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 mainstream i mean that's how history works don't they get it like they really want us to wait until it's an all in, until there's a democrat in the white house or all democratic congress and then we'll do it i mean that's just not how it works, and, and we. Well, can... we had that. We had that in 2008, and we still didn't do it. Yeah, exactly. And so the part of it is we're afraid of we're afraid of our donors, right? Yeah. The same people that donate to the Republicans donate to the Democrats, right. and we're too disruptive with the big insurance companies and big pharma. Um, you know, then you you're not you kind of you only can speak with a level of honesty if you're unmoored. If, that the that the public really wants if you're unmoored from these corporate donors. Mm. So I think that's a that's why a lot of us are running. Like I'm running without taking any corporate money. I think that's really really important today. Yeah. Um, but also they kept, they wanted to call us like dividers. Uh, have you heard that? Uh, I don't know. I, oh. I get that a lot. Like if you if you take hardline stances, then yeah. you're like not being a unifier. Or purity but, politics. Purity politics. Right, that's but, another one. Yeah. But but let's look let's look back at history. What what are we united around today? Yeah. Folks on both parties are united um, around Medicare, mm-hmm. Social Security. Most people don't want to touch these things. Right. And in Hawaii, like we used to, there's this island called Kaho'olawe that the military used to bomb. Um, nobody, everyone thinks like, oh, good thing we stopped that. We got to take care of Kaho'olawe. All three of these things weren't achieved through incrementalism. Right. These are hardcore radical policies at the time that people had to organize and strike. Like It, it was some of the most turbulent um, movements in in our history mm. and 
by really, really bold leftist progressives. And uh, but when you fast forward 50 years, um, history is very, very kind to people like us. And the only the few things that were united around came from that kind of radical uh, progressivism. Want to hear our extended interview with today's guest, Haniela Ng? Make sure you become Patreon members. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. You can hear the Katie Helper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI. That's 99.5 FM or WBAI.org. Make sure you rate and review us on iTunes where you can also find us. And you can find us on SoundCloud. Haniela Saito Ng is an American politician and Democratic member of the Hawaii State House of Representatives. He's been a rep since 2012, and he's currently the Majority Policy Leader and Chair of the Ocean, Marine Resources, and Hawaiian Affairs Committee. And he is running to represent Hawaii's first district in the U.S. House of Representatives. Ng is also a member of the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. So definitely check him out. Go to Kaniellaing.com, his website. That's www.kaniellaing.com. He's part of this new insurgent movement of politicians who are unbossed and unbought. And you can also follow him on Twitter and find him on Facebook. His Twitter handle is Kaniellaing. That's just K A N. I-E-L-A-I-N-G and you can look him up on Facebook under that name too. Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Halper Show. We'll see you next week.